the Tom Flowers Cricket Coaching Podcast, brought to you by Bespoke Cricket, Rutland's premium cricket brand. For the best bats, pads and gloves, check out bespoke-cricket.co.uk. Here's what's coming up on the podcast. I think there was a clear respect that he was the coach, we're the players, but when it comes to the technicalities of, of coaching, he really nailed it. If you've got nothing constructive to say or you feel that you're saying something for the sake of it then don't say anything at all your voice as a coach can carry so much power now on with the podcast hi guys welcome to episode four the tfcc podcast life of a cricket coach with me tom flowers ecb level four coach and director of the tfcc group limited right everyone um Episode four today, a bit of a deeper episode, so I hope you're uh, sitting comfortably wherever you might be, listening in the car, in the gym, whatever whatever that looks like. So today's episode, rather than sort of bouncing around different things, I want to focus right in on, on a topic that's, um, that I've spent a lot of time thinking about over the last three, four years during my final uh, coaching qualifications, etc. I think first, firstly pointing out, you're always learning as a coach, so whatever said today, it's it's with a view that the continual plan, do, review, and continue that cycle again. You know, review what you've review what you've done, review how you planned it, do it again. I think that continuous cycle is something that if you're a progressive coach and a progressive individual, that the the want to learn and the um, ability to self reflect and want to improve is at the centre of. Um, any sort of self-development. So from my side, my coaching beliefs and how they've been shaped, I think that's what what's what I focus on today. So hope you enjoyed today's podcast, guys. And um, as ever, whatever, whatever thoughts you've got, feedback, I'd love to hear it. So my coaching beliefs then, what are, what are they? So for me, uh, my coaching centers around three or four key principles, really. First of them is keeping it simple. So simplicity is a huge part of my, my coaching toolkit. If something can be said in three or four words rather than um, 25, it might be hard, hard to believe listening to some of these podcasts, but certainly when the dialogue I'm having here between myself and you guys as coaches or whoever's listening in is very different to how I'd impart the information on a player. And I think that what you choose to impart and not impart, especially as you become more of an experienced coach, is, is really the art of coaching. Uh, as coaches, we have all these great ideas. You know, I might work with a... Um, relatively novice player who I think there's two or three areas that they could improve on however from the start I'm not going to fly in with all two or three I'll slowly drip feed them consider how I um, go about feeding that information what type of individual they are how they're going to interpret it how I need to um, deliver that information and, and how they're going to take it in keeping it simple absolutely is one of my first things Secondly, something I'm, I'm massive on is maximising individual's potential. So by that, I mean the sessions you're running, the programmes you've got them on, the drills you're doing, whatever it might be, are you pushing the individual to, the, to the, their maximum ability? Uh, or are you letting, letting them sit comfortably or, you know, perhaps in some cases, maybe pushing them too hard? But more often than not, are you, are you pushing the individual as far as they can be pushed as far as they're willing to be pushed and have you had that conversation you know how how far do you want to go with your cricket and do you want to be the best you can be and that's a quote i will often use you know with with guys young players older players whatever it is is that you know how how good do you want to be if i see potential in someone ask the question look if, you, if you're not bothered about maximizing your potential that's fine i'm probably not the coach for you um and certainly 
on an individual basis, I probably wouldn't would steer away from working with a with an individual like that. In a team, it's slightly different because you're going to get guys who perhaps have a way of displaying how enthused or how keen they are to be the best they can. But my viewpoint and perspective might be different to them. So sometimes I have to sort of cross my own beliefs and try and try and sort of filter out that what we call sort of unconscious bias, really, I guess, of a player if they've got a different way of displaying that they care. Um, about something, it could be appearance, the way they um, go about their business, how professional they look, how whatever it might be. And if my standards are different, it's look trying to look between the lines, going, okay, this is what they're portraying, but what is it they actually want, and what do they actually believe, and how they're going to get there? And that's my job as a coach to do that. And finally, I think for me, it's about keeping things enjoyable. If you're having fun with what you're doing and you are making sessions fun, individual lessons fun, and there is that rapport. Um, that's huge for me. I'm quite a, quite a big personality when I coach, and I really try and create an energy and an atmosphere that where the individual feels comfortable, as I said, with me, but challenged enough that I'm going to keep them on their toes. And I think that one of my real things, key things in my toolkit is that rapport and, and banter and, and back and forth, because so I think that can make great strides if, the, if you feel the players challenging themselves, but also feeling that you're challenging them a little bit as well. So they're my three things, really, as, as far as um, working broadly with individuals. I think I've got some other principles. So as a, as a batting coach, for example, which is probably my specialism, as well as sort of fielding, spin bowling a little bit, but batting would be my specialism. For me, major, you know, really simple batting principles are head position. I think head is massive. Getting your head consistently in a good position, slightly pushed forward to keep your weight coming into the ball. I like to take the emphasis off the footwork. I think we can obsess too much as batters about feet when actually if our head's going towards the ball, often our feet will follow. It's not to say you, you ignore feet totally, but I think that if you've only got a player for a short amount of time where you can focus on one thing, the head position is crucial. I think if a player's balanced... That's absolutely crucial. And again, I link all these in, so they're not separate entities. If a player's balanced, it's often because their head position's good. It's into the ball. That means the head's coming forward, keeping the weight into the shot, meaning maximum transfer of power, whether you're playing attacking or defensively. Two things will be there. And finally, just consistency. And by that, I mean or, or rhythm, whatever you want to call it, consistency, rhythm, or consistency of rhythm. So small things, you know, consistent setup, eyes level, um, consistent guard, unless you're aware, consciously aware of changing that, um, consistent tr pre-movements if you've got them, and tactically a consistent game plan. So, you know, if you're... If your game is to give yourself room, do you do that? Or um, if your game is to use your feet against spin or to sweep against spin, do you consistently show these behaviours? And I think that certainly what I've seen where guys jump up levels is when A, they've worked out a game plan, and B, they're confident enough to execute it, and C, confident enough to execute it under pressure when it really matters. Because often our thinking, and if I link it back to the last episode, what I said, guys, about, uh, for those who listened, about picking young players and, and giving them the confidence to go and do what they do and reasoning being because we've picked you because what you do already you do it well link it back to that how many of them guys then try something different when under pressure or when put in a new situation i think it's a it's a real lesson for us as coaches so they're my principles i say as, as holistically and as a as a batting coach, hope that's useful for you guys. So they're my coaching beliefs from my perspective. I now want to look at the second part of today's podcast, and this is going to be looking at how my coaches over the years have shaped these current beliefs, what my main learnings have been from them, 
and why I've 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 shaped my thought process on on the positives and and some not so positive areas. So I'd like to look into that now, guys. So I'm gonna take you right back to my early days. Age six, turned up to Bartwick United Cricket Club. Peter Booth was the coach at that point, ex-Leicestershire fast bowler, Boothy as we used to call him. You wouldn't call him that on, on the training, like you call him Mr. Booth. Um, and I think the first point there is um, is about the respect. I think there was a clear respect that he was the coach, we're the players. And yes, there's a slightly more informal relationship when you're. It's not a school, for example. It's not the workplace, but ultimately, there's a respect there that he was an elder and he'd been there and done it. I wanted to get there, and straight away when you are faced with someone who is in their full whites for training sessions which look I mean we've moved with the times now that's perhaps outdated but if you talk about coaches displaying behaviours and values uh, Boothy would always turn up pristine whites um, fully prepared for his session and the big thing I take away from Peter Booth sessions two things number one the consistency consistency to his approach he was very methodical very by the books of MCC textbook extremely technical but he never veered away from it. So there wasn't the latest fad, the latest... There's a scuba diver, for example, on, on, on iCoach Cricket, and we can learn from them. Yeah, fine, we can do. But when it comes to the technicalities of, of coaching, he really nailed it. He used to talk about his foot position, his, his head position. I, I remember it clear, clear as day. Toe, thigh, head up, he used to say, pre-delivery. And I think for an early player, there was no coincidence that... Two of the best young players from our era, if you like, Josh Cobb, Sonny Patel, over at Kibworth, we had over at Barkby, myself, Ian Kirk, these sort of guys. And there was that crop of players who all got coaching from Peter Booth. And to, as an example of installing, installing the technical basics into youngsters, which does not happen, and to be honest... Because we miss that phase, often doesn't happen by the time guys get to a county age group or academy level. They've not got a base, the basics or an awareness of the basics like they should have. So absolutely massive the impact that Peter Booth had on both technical and discipline for me as a player. And I've certainly held on to some of them values as a coach. Um, I'll then move on to John Smith. John Smith, local cricket legend in Leicestershire. Um, used to coach sort of under nines, tens, elevens cricket, and I'm yet to come across a coach who has better rapport both with players. But the big thing John got right, and he never ever read a book on it. I know that for a fact, was the understanding he developed of players away from cricket, their relationships with parents, brothers, whatever it might be, their cricket clubs. He was he, he had an art and uh, unseen talent, in my opinion, when it came to understanding the, the whole player. I think I can remember in three seasons of having John, three or four seasons, you know, one technical chat maybe. Everything was focused around, you're a good player, go out there and express yourself. Whack the, this was pre-2020 as well, you know, you want to play your shots, be aggressive, whack the ball, you know, back yourself. And I think that all the things he said were probably um, five, six, seven years ahead of his time when it came to sort of coaching on pathways. There are common quotes now from pathway coaches, you know, back yourself, play your shots. If you get out playing your shots, no problem. And I felt he was ahead of his time, really. So um, Smithy, or Smiggies used to call him. Excellent coach in that sense. Didn't overcomplicate the technical side of things, but there was huge, huge emphasis placed, probably unconsciously, on the rapport, understanding his players, and that generated a different kind of respect from from players who became more independent because of that. Because he's probably more hands off on a technical front, but 
he certainly was an enthuser of confidence. And you read stuff about McCullum and what the players are currently saying. I think that's something that Smithy was probably ahead of his time. I then got signed on the academy as a 13-year-old at Leicester. So I was under the watchful eye of Phil Whittacase. Now, I spent... Until I was... 18 on the academy and then went off to Loughborough University and kept coming back to train with the pros, play with the pros on sort of a pay-as-you-play sort of basis, as they call it now, summer contracts, whatever you want to call it. You know, I was I was coming back to Leicester playing my cricket. But throughout them years, they were obviously my formative years as a player and that's where you really, really make your development, I think, as, as a cricketer and you learn you learn how to play cricket. You don't just learn about the shots, the game. You learn how to play the game. I was fortunate at Leicester, played with some extremely talented cricketers within the same changing rooms who always spent time, you know, what the majority did. Your Darren Maddies, Paul Nixons, these guys who you'd look up to, they'd mentor you. I remember having long chats with John Maunders, John Sadler. Nick Ferriby, all these guys, um, the Freitas, Jeremy Snape as well is one that springs to mind there straight away. But I compare it now to say a 15-year-old coming into the second team and, and there aren't them role models around and you probably lean more towards the coach, I think, probably now because you've not got that seniority around the changing room. Whereas I guess sort of 15 years ago, maybe longer now, 18 years ago, there was still your your old senior pros that would, would turn out in the twos. And, and, and yeah, so I think that maybe that's firstly worth pointing out that the shift of dynamics where you'd lean on senior players in the changing room more, whereas now, I look, say, for example, at Leicester, who would I be asking for, for knowledge or support or mentoring in that second team? Other than the coach, I don't think I probably would. And that's no disrespect to the guys that are in that side, but I'd want to be better than them. I was looking at these guys going, I want to be as good as you, I'll be better than you. And you're looking at their guys there now, and they're not the levels. If you're aspiring to play first-class cricket for a sustained period of time, then they're not the guys I'd probably be be wanting to look at. But that's an interesting dynamic to start with. So I'll probably be looking more towards the coach now. <laughs> Going back to my academy days, Phil um, Whitty case used to call him the sergeant major. Whitty was, I think, he was a good guy, and I think he had the best interests at heart. I think. He he got through his coaching badges quite early, but one thing that stands out to me with, with Phil was his lack of ability to relate to different types of people. So Phil's general people skills set, and by that I mean, you know, delivery of information to people, how to um, how to deal with different types of personalities. If somebody's quiet, how do you how do you approach them? If somebody's a overthinker such as me you know quite an intense cricketer I was very over analytical what I didn't need and and Phil did do this I didn't need someone pouring fuel on the fire and making me overthink things even more you know and become more analytical what I needed looking back and it's easy to say now now I've progressed through my coaching but I needed someone who who would be more standoffish more um, coaching me as an individual you know giving me confidence and more of a confidence giver and the, I guess the one key thing I've learned from from my experiences through the academy was the disciplines Phil tried to implement. The time where I dyed my hair because I wanted to be like be like KP and got an ear piercing like Kevin Peterson, which I don't have anymore. And you know because that's what you aspire to these guys. And and he sort of you know one of his quotes was, "Oh, you'll never score another run with that in your ear." And that's an interesting quote, I think. And. Um, as an impressionable 17-year-old, that obviously meant a lot. I mean, you can imagine sort of things like that being said. Now, it might have been said in jest, and you know, it might be, be old school, but 
you wouldn't have minded that sort of banter and that sort of um, if if that relationship was there. And and for me, that relationship was never there. Yeah, look, I'm sure Phil would look back on his coaching now and uh, and probably realise that his management of, of of different individuals and different types of personalities could have been better. Look, ultimately, I say this to everyone: I don't make excuses. I didn't score enough runs as a as a um, in a second team cricketer. And sorry, I didn't score enough hundreds. Probably I scored lots of 90s 80s 70s but didn't score enough hundreds and I take full responsibility for that it was never it was never lack of opportunity and I hear that a lot from guys now youngsters and I and I nip that in the bud as a coach I do because I believe if you're good enough you get you get the opportunities but I can honestly say and I didn't realize this till probably I got to the age of 28 29 that not once can I remember him saying to me Tom you're a good player get out there we back you the county backs you I back you go and enjoy it mate You've got X amount of games. You're going to get a good run in the side. You know, um, this is how we view you. Uh, this is what so and so thinks of you. This is head coach's view. This is the captain's view, and just them little confidence boosts and a bit of backing and confidence giving would have made a hell of a lot of difference to me as a person. So, I just think it's worth noting that when that's there compared to, and that's the way I try and coach with that confidence, being a confidence giver to players. It certainly can do no harm, you know, saying saying to a player that you believe in them, putting your arm around them. And I felt Phil perhaps didn't have that, just that ability to put his arm around a player and, and get onto that level a little bit and a bit of empathy at times. I think just one one incident that stands out from my you talk about life changing incidents and, and and episodes etc. So I got my first hundred. I got I got seventy odd not out as a seventeen year old against Yorkshire, which which included a really good bowling attack, and I thought I played really well. Batted for sixty odd overs, you know, against Bresnan, Shazad. Um, I think Rashid might have played that day. Hannan Dolby maybe. And a few years later, I, I got my first 100, probably three or four seasons later, actually, against North Ants. And batted all day, got 100, my first ever 100 for Leicestershire. I was buzzing absolutely over the moon, uh, you know, thinking, yeah, that's got to have impressed the coaching staff. And then on the back of that, got called into the first team squad anyway for the next few games in the, in the one day. As I didn't actually play, I got called into the touring game against the West Indies. Again, didn't play, didn't make my debut in the end. But... The day after I scored my first 100, a comment that resonates with me as a player, and I'm talking here again about how your voice as a coach can carry so much power and so much weight, and I'm talking about this still now 13, 14 years on. The quote he said to me the day after was, you need to improve your pull shot. Not, thought you played really well, you know, that's a massive feather in your cap, Tom, let's push on from here, you know, hopefully it's your first of many, just, I think you need to improve your pull shot, and that was it. And whether that was his way of being hard-nosed or um, you know, trying to inspire me or motivate me, in fact, if he knew me better, it did totally the opposite. Because I was buzzing, first week in April, 100 in the twos, you know, this is going to be a great season. It was just like putting a pin in a balloon. And um, yeah, I guess the message you can take from that is, look, it's about understanding the the privilege I talked about this in, in in a previous episode I think that coaching is a privilege and we're in a privileged position and not to underestimate or take for granted any form of interaction or encounter that um, that you have with a player um, I think coming back to to Phil I think that 
just that ability to, and not everybody has this, and it's something I'm so conscious of trying to work on, develop my interactions with individuals and understanding that you are dealing with guys when they're in their most impressionable stages of their lives. And the things that you say to them can have major, major lasting long-term impact. Something that might just be an off-the-cuff comment during a session or during a, a, a team meal or whatever it might be has can have major lasting effects, especially on cricketers that are trying to make their way, that perhaps aren't trying, quite sure finding their feet, etc. So one thing, my big, big learning curve from that is, is the following. If you've got nothing constructive to say, or you feel that you're saying something for the sake of it, then don't say anything at all, okay? That's the first thing. And secondly, if know your player, know your individual, know, you play it, know your player. If you've got someone who craves that technical help, and you think they need it, and they want it, and they're better for it, give them it. But you've got to be strong. If you think all you're doing is adding fuel to that fire and making them more intense, making them more complicated, you have to be strong enough as a coach to go, you know what, mate, you're a good player. Get on with it and go out there and play. Hope that gives you an insight, guys, to sort of my, my coaching uh, and how that's developed and, and, and with my own playing. So that leads me on to university, which is where really my, I say my, my serious cricketing year, um, career ended really I got to 22 and obviously went down the coaching route and stopped the pursuing the the career of playing at an early age really and my university coach was the late Graham Dilly um, and Dilly and obviously now been replaced by Russell Cobb who I worked um, worked with on a casual basis Cobby during the age groups um, not as much as Phil but Russell again was a very similar character to Graham and I'll explain that in a moment so Graham was I felt brilliant coach for me um, why because over three years, four years, if you take the year I took out, spoke to me very, very little about anything technically. He was all about trusting the player, trusting your presence. If you weren't doing your preparation, if you weren't buying into your program, he'd have a word with you. But Graham did his talking with his decision making. So if he promoted you in the order, you knew that he, he you know, was, was backing you. Or if he picked you for a certain game or said, this is your role, you know, he, he gave you confidence in that way. I also think that, yeah, it's what he didn't say that was powerful. And I think he, he worked me out. And I remember he, I turned up for one game and he said, how are you, Tom? We turned up against Durham 2s for, you know, 50 over game, whatever it was. And he said, how are you? And I said, I'm, I'm good, mate. Yeah, good. And, and at the time, I'd been brought up with my cricket. very much, you know, that um, not old school cricketer because I, I worked extremely hard at my game. But I guess when it comes to things off the field, you know, I, I did like to have a beer in an evening and, and relax. Didn't go over the top during matches and games. But I was very much, and, and we'd be talking cricket most of the time anyway. I think I was from uh, probably from that old school. But Graham made a comment once and he said, oh, what did you do last night? And I hadn't done anything the night before, actually. And he said, oh, were you in Echoes? I was like, no, well, it was just a nightclub in Loughborough. And um, he, he said, well, why not? I said, I said no, I'll to take him back. I said, what do you mean, Graham? He goes, well, you always get runs when you've had a beer. And it was tongue-in-cheek, and we had a laugh about it. But his point was, is that, look, providing that you know yourself and know your routines and your preparation and what works he put trust in me that to not go over the top and to do my thing knowing that it would put me in the best state of mind to to perform the day after look there were other guys who that would be just unheard of and and, and I can't speak for them but I think one thing with Graham is he very much and as a result the university cricket I played at Loughborough I was probably in the most relaxed frame of mind that I'd ever found myself in as a cricketer 
Uh, look, I was still battling my, my mental health issues at the time, which as I said I'll touch on in a future episode happily and be a bit more open about that. But I think that the way Graham went about his business and it was what he didn't say, which made him a, a very powerful and useful coach for myself. Guys, hope that's been useful today, giving you an insight into my coaching beliefs and philosophies and how your coaching experiences of yourself can shape your coaching, but also um, make you aware of potential banana skins. You know, well, this is the way I was coached, therefore that's how I should. I think there's a balance. I think you pick the best parts out of your coaching journey as a player. If you've played, that is, you pick out the not so good parts of your coaching journey and you look to mould your own beliefs into that. So it's a bit like a stew, you know, you're bringing everything together and a combination of all of them, experiences, positives, negative, your own beliefs, your own learning, your own continued learning gives you what your own brand and what you stand for as a coach. Guys, hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If there are any questions, please ping them in. Any feedback we've got, that'd be great. Please like, subscribe, download the episodes. It's all great. really helps momentum of these podcasts. I do hope you're enjoying them. And we'll hopefully see you on the next one, episode five of the TFCC podcast. Thanks, guys. Go well. You enjoyed this podcast? Be sure to leave us a review and follow us so you never miss an episode.